We're in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 through 4. The angels must know information. The angels must know information. If you would, stand for reading of God's word. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Oh, but you, Daniel, shut up the words of the seal of the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. This is the word of God. Please be seated. The angels must know information. As you know by now, as this is the last chapter in the book of Daniel, The theme is God is sovereign over nations, God is sovereign over rulers, and God is sovereign over you. And we need to remember that, that God is in control. Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 are are Daniel's last vision, last vision of what's going to happen in the future. And the angel comes and explains it. Probably Gabriel reveals to us what's going to happen with Israel, reveals to us that there will be a coming Antichrist, reveals to us that there's going to be a world that will be in tumult. These prophecies were so precise that most of the critics say this had to happen after the fact. It could not have been predicted before. This is so accurate, so precise, that it had to be something that Daniel is just writing down as history. That is not so. He predicted these things. This is prophecy. Something that was predicted in the past came to fruition. So the angel said, just as a brief review, that there would be four coming leaders in Persia. And guess what? There were four coming leaders in Persia. The last one would be the most powerful. The last one was Xerxes, and there was one that was to follow Xerxes, but it wouldn't be a a Persian. It would be a Grecian, and he would be be Alexander the Great, and he would conquer Persia. His reign would be very quick, but he would die at the age of 30 after conquering the entire world with nothing else to conquer. Some people think he died of a disease. Some people he died think he died drunk. But anyway, he died, and he left that nation to four generals, just like the Bible predicted. There were four rulers, four rulers, just as predicted. Two of the four generals, we know as Ptolemy and Seleucus, they fought a 150-year war, and the prophecies in Daniel are very specific on how that whole war took place. There were wives that were given. There were peace treaties that were made and broken. And they went back and forth with the nation of Israel. Remember, we had that map up here with the nation of Israel in between. That was a big section of the battleground. The Holy Land, God's people, experienced the tumult of the Seleucid-Ptolemy Wars. And it was even so specific that Ptolemy started out the most powerful, but Seleucid ended up being the most powerful. And then we were introduced to a guy called Antiochus IV, Antiochus the Epiphanes. And he was a picture of the Antichrist in chapter 11, verse 21 through 35. And he came, with, he came in with stealth. He came undercover. He came in with a lot of bribing and that sort of thing. That's just how the Antichrist is going to come in. He, doesn't, he starts out slow and then crescendos and reach a, reaches a point of, of taking over everything. Antiochus IV even had an abomination of desolation, just like the Antichrist will. And Antiochus IV was opposed was opposed by one guy. One guy stood up and said, no, 
to Antiochus IV. And that was Judas ben Matthias and his three sons. And they fought a war with the Seleucids, and they finally won, and they booted Antiochus and his crew out of town. So last week we talked about the Antichrist. We know in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, Scripture says there's been many Antichrists in the past. Many people that have risen up and, and fought against Christ. They have been instead of Christ or against Christ. That was an, that's what anti means. But this Antichrist that we talked about last week, he is the real deal. He's the guy that comes on the scene that's going to change everything. He will exalt himself even above God. He'll be a master of diplomacy. He'll be a military leader. He'll be a financial genius, and he'll be the smoother of smoothers. I mean, he's going to smooth talk people into just loving him and setting him up as, as some sort of king. He will reign for three and a half years at the, from the mid-tribulation on. He will rise slowly at the beginning of the tribulation. He will cause people to fall in love with him. He will come to, to the rescue of, of the world. The world will be in tumult and he will be the one that everybody turns to and looks to. That last three and a half years, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21, that there shall be great tribulation, as since it has not been since the beginning of the world, nor ever shall be. What is on the horizon is something horrific. The Antichrist is going to come up again as a powerful figure to solve the world's problems, but the price that will be paid is he will insist to be worshipped as God. The false prophet will insist that the Antichrist is worshipped as God. He will set up the abomination of desolation. He will insist on taking the mark of the beast. He will insist if you do not do these things, you will die. And many, many, many will be martyred in the tribulation period. There will be many saved in the tribulation period. It will be the greatest revival ever. There, you know, Today we talk about a great worldwide revival. I don't see that happening. I pray that it does happen, but I don't see that as happening. I think what is actually going to happen is that revival will happen in the tribulation period when the 12,000 from each tribe, the 144,000 Jews for Jesus that are spread all over the world, will spread the gospel message, and that will be a great harvest of souls. We'll see that. I'll mention that again in just a second in Revelation chapter 7. We also talked about the counterfeit trinity that will, that will exist. Satan is the counterfeit father. Antichrist is the counterfeit son. The false prophet is the counterfeit Holy Spirit, even to the point where as the Holy Spirit exalts the Lord Jesus Christ, points everything towards Jesus, that's how you know there's balance in a church. A balance in a church was the Lord Jesus is supreme. The Holy Spirit points everything towards Jesus Christ. He isn't the one that is, that is supreme within the church. He points everything to Jesus. So it's out of balance when the Holy Spirit is promoted over Jesus Christ. That's an out-of-balance church. It also, the Antichrist is going to be the counterfeit son. He's going, to, he's going to produce incredible miracles. We saw this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. And people, again, are going to be mesmerized by this guy. And it's even going to be the point, to the point of a resurrection. He's going to have a fatal wound, and he will be resurrected copying Jesus' resurrection. Satan's goal is to copy God and to be worshipped as God, and most of the world, and I'm telling you, he is going to be a deceiver of deceivers, most of the world will fall for his shenanigans. They will follow the Antichrist, but there will be a Jewish remnant that will say no. And that 
key thing that happens that they see that the Antichrist does is the real abomination of desolation. When the false prophet sets up a statue of him in the Holy of Holies and insists that everybody worship him, Jesus said, when you see that happening in Matthew 24, run for the hills. And you remember where they run to? They run to Petra, and they are protected supernaturally by God. Protected by God. The book of Daniel, folks, is coming to an end. The angel is going to give us clarification on what to expect. This week, the angels must know information. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. That, As always, to study your word, it's a privilege, Lord, to hear from you. You've given us this word so that we know what to expect. We know what to expect that is coming, and we know that we, we can expect you to enter into this world and correct everything. There is bad things coming, but there's also great things coming. And we thank you for the promise of the soon return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thank you for this study today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we talked about chapters 10, 11, and 12. Again, that's a, 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 a review. It's the last vision, the last vision that Daniel has. The angel tells Daniel and us what is coming. Remember this. God expects his people to know. He holds us accountable for knowing. Last week, we ended with the Antichrist declaring war on the Ten Kings. Antichrist wants world domination. He doesn't want to share it with ten other kingdoms or ten other rulers. He wants to rule, and he will stop at nothing to accomplish this, and he will exert his greatest power against the Jewish people. He's going to want to kill every Jew he can possibly kill. And the reason he wants to do that is to thwart the second coming of Christ. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, in his book, Footsteps of Messiah, gives us a little hint on this. So why does Satan hate the Jews and want to exterminate them? Arnold will give us this insight. The Jewish people must do two things prior to Jesus establishing his kingdom. Number one, they must confess their national sin of rejecting Messiah. And that is in Hosea chapter 5, verse, verse 15. That's a double reference verse. It's referring to something at that time, but also something that is coming into the future. But Jesus also said in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, they must plead for Jesus to return. They must plead. The Jewish people must plead for Jesus to return. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You have rejected the prophets. You were not willing. You will not, I will not come to you again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. While Antichrist is exerting his power on the earth, he's taking over at this last half of the tribulation, he is taking over planet earth. He is fighting with everybody. He's, ex he's establishing his kingdom on earth. There's something that is happening in the heavenlies concomitantly. So he's exerting his power on earth, slaughtering the Jews and everybody else that comes in his way. He attempt, and Satan at this time will attempt to exert his power in heaven. And that is where I think we see Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 12, come into effect. And I'll just give you the, the, the short version of this. this describe, the, 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 I'll describe the scene to you. There's war in heaven. The dragon and his angels fight with Michael and his angels. Can you imagine the hubris 
Can you imagine the arrogance of Satan to think that he can fight against Michael and his angels and against God and be victorious? See, that's what sin does. Sin makes you crazy. Crazy makes you insane. And Satan has a little insane moment. Of course, he doesn't win. He's cast to the earth. Now, remember, heaven is exalted. You just are just thrilled because Satan is cast to the earth. But it says, woe to the earth. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And what does he do when he's cast to the earth? His first thing is he persecutes the woman. And we know in in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, that the woman is Israel. It's very specifically Israel. So he marches after Israel in 12, 13. He wants to kill every Jew that he possibly can. And they will flee to their place in Petra. God will miraculously protect them and provide for them. We had those pictures on the screen last week. The dragon is enraged and makes war with the offspring. He can't get to them. His army is, swol- is swallowed up. There's a great earthquake. His army cannot get to those remnants. God will supernaturally protect them. So in a rage, he turns against the remnant. He turns against whatever Jews are left in Jerusalem and probably throughout the world and, and their offspring. And notice what it says here. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's his target. Anybody that believes in Jesus Messiah, or any Jew who could possibly believe in Jesus Messiah. Now, this is the background to our, to our text today. So in chapter 12, verse 1, the angels must know information, Michael's role, Michael's role. At that time, Michael shall stand up. Now, what time is it? It is at the middle to the end of the tribulation. It is when Antichrist is exerting his power, and he's taking over control of earth. And he's fighting all these ten nations. He's fighting anybody that will stand in his way. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble. This is Jacob's trouble. This is the tribulation, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. At that time, your people shall be delivered. And that's a promise. There will be a people, a Jewish people, that will be delivered. Everyone who was found written in the book will be delivered. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That's, that's the next verse. So, Michael, his name is this. Who is like God? He's an archangel, and he's one of the chief princes. It says in, in Daniel 10, 13. So there's more archangels. We just know that Michael is, is, is one. That's the only one we know. There's more. And it's also interesting that in, throughout church history, there have been people that believe that Michael is a pre-incarnate Christ. John Kelvin actually believed this, that he was a pre-incarnate Christ. Of course, the Jehovah Witnesses believe this. That's one of their, their big tenets. This is false. This is not true. Michael is an archangel. He's a created being. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. and He became flesh. They are not the same. Jesus is the creator. Michael is the created. So let's just get that one straight. Michael is powerful, but he is not Jesus Christ. There are four named angels in Scripture. One is Michael. The second is Gabriel. The third is Satan. And the fourth one, which you probably aren't familiar with, is this guy called Abaddon. And he's, he's in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11. He's the chief of those who are in Tartarus, 
Remember some of these angels, because they had left their domain in Genesis chapter 6 and cohabitated with the women, were sequestered into Tartarus, and that is where they say he is the one that is the chief there. Those demons will be let out in the middle to the end of the tribulation to torture those who are not sealed by God on earth. That will be coming in a Revelation study. Those are the four that are mentioned in Scripture. Michael, who is like God. Michael will stand up, and his job is to protect Israel. He stands over the sons of your people, Israel. Michael will protect the fleeing remnant from the Antichrist. That is going to be a significant thing. He's going to be their protector. Michael's going to be sure that all the Jews aren't going to be killed. He will be the one that God sends to protect them. It talks about a time of trouble, a time of anguish, a time of distress, a time of tribulation. It will be an awful time, the worst time in the history of the planet, the tribulation period. Such has never was since there was a nation, the great tribulation. In Matthew chapter 24, we just read it in verse 21, Jesus said that. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30 verse 7. Now these Jews that are fleeing... I am going to call the remnant. So who are the remnant? These are the ones that Michael protects. These are the fleeing Jews who will finally believe at the end of the tribulation period. When they flee at the middle of the tribulation period, they still don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They just know from the book of Daniel that they're supposed to get out of town. Okay, so we have that, we have that straight. They don't believe to the very end. Now, our Fruchtenbaum and his footsteps of Messiah will give us three reasons for the tribulation. Three reasons for the tribulation. This is a little side note, okay? Number one reason for the tribulation is to make an end of wickedness and the wicked one. That's to do away with all the stuff of Satan in this world. That's Isaiah 24, 19 through 20. Then he says number two is to bring about a great worldwide revival, and that is Revelation chapter 7. Verse 1 through 17, this is where the 144,000 Jews for Jesus evangelize the world. Now, let me just pause here for just a second. I want you to think about something. Throughout the history of time, the Jews have been dispersed throughout the world. No people group have ever been dispersed and maintained their identity. The Jewish people have. That's God's miracle. God gave them their land on May 14, 1948. These Jews are implanted all over the world in people groups. So they have been acclimated to the culture. They know the language. They know the customs of the people that they've been assimilated in. They're going to be absolutely terrific evangelists. They don't have to be trained. They don't have to know the language. They don't have to go to Wycliffe for four years to learn some foreign language. They already know it. This is God's plan for evangelizing the world. And they will be very successful. And the third purpose of the tribulation is to break the stubborn will of the holy people or the, or the Jewish nation. They will finally realize that Jesus is the Messiah. That's going to be Ezekiel 20, verse 33 through 38, where the remnant will pass through and they will realize that Jesus is the real Messiah. But that won't happen until the very end. So the great tribulation is the last three and a half years. It says this, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Now, I want to show you something here. The question is this, who are delivered? It says your people. It's not every Jew that's delivered. 
There are people that believe that if you're a Jew, you're automatically going to get in because you're God's people. That's not true. Only a remnant will get in. So who are the ones delivered? Everyone found written in the book. What is the book? I believe it's the book of life. The book of life. Now, what's in the book of life? Why is that significant? Folks, make sure your name is in the book of life by the time you get to the end of your life. That's the important thing. Number one, it's the name of every person born. Psalm 139.16. The name is retained if a person believes in Jesus Messiah in their lifetime as their Savior. That's Revelation 3.5. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you commit yourself to him, your name is retained in the book. The name is removed if a person refuses to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's Psalm 69.28. So the remnant of Jews that flee, that see the abomination, they flee non-believing in Messiah, but by the end they will be believers. Now I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 11, because there's a very significant verse here. Most of you will know this, some of you won't but it is something that I think is important for all of us to know. So Romans chapter 11. Now, if you remember Romans chapter 11, it's talking about Israel's rejection of God, Israel's rejection of Messiah. It talks about the Gentiles being grafted in and being part of the lump, which would be Israel. And Paul makes an incredible statement here that we must know. Starts in verse 29. Paul says, for I do not desire brethren. So he's talking to believers. He's talking to believers that you should be ignorant of this mystery. God wants us to know. A mystery in the New Testament is something that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. It's mysterion is the Greek word. Mystery, it's now it's revealed. Now there's a revelation about what God wants us to know lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Don't think you're so high and mighty. The blindness in part has happened to Israel. In part, there are still Jews being saved, but not many. They are a blinded people group. Of all the people on planet Earth, the Jews are the most blinded. Now, they're blinded until a time. So the blindness in part has happened to Israel until a specific time, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We've talked about this term before, the fullness of the Gentiles. It is in Acts 15, 14, God will take from the Gentiles a people for his name. This is the Gentiles being added in to God's plan for humanity. Jew and Gentile all saved, all part of the family of God. So the fullness of the Gentiles is from the church start at the Pentecost until the church exits at the rapture. There is one last dude or one last dudess that needs to be saved. And when that person gets saved, we get to exit stage left, okay? So witness to everybody you can. Hopefully that's the last one and we can get out of here. And so all Israel will be saved. Now, some people believe, again, that's all the nation of Israel, but it's not talking about that. It's talking about the remnant. The deliverer will come out of Zion, that'll be Jesus. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. The remnant of Jewish people 
are the all. Not all are the all, the remnant are the all. We know in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8, that two-thirds will be killed. Two-thirds of the Jews will be killed. Two-thirds will reject Messiah. One-third will run. One-third will believe at the end of the tribulation period. So, the angels must know information. Number one, Michael's role. Number two, have your name written in the book of life. Believe in Jesus while you can. Verse 2 and 3, the angels must know information. Folks, there's going to be two resurrections. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there's going to be two resurrections, and you better be in the first resurrection. So verse 2 and 3, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. He's talking about resurrection. Some to everlasting life, that's the first resurrection, and some to shame and everlasting contempt, that's the second resurrection. Those who are wise shall shine. These are the everlasting life crowd, like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. What a contrast between the luminaries in the heaven and the brightness of the heavens to the darkness of being separated from God. So there's some facts here that I want you to think about. Fact number one, and I think you know this, all people will die. No matter how we repress that, no matter how many treadmills you run on, no matter how many marathons you go to, no matter how many vitamins you take, no matter how many facelifts you gift, and you try to look young, even though you're not young, you will die. And how we fight against this? It's going to happen. All will die except the raptured believers. That's our blessed hope. Fact number two, all people will be resurrected. The first resurrection is to everlasting life. The second resurrection is to everlasting shame and contempt. Fact number three, all people will be judged. Believers will receive their judgment at the Bema Seat judgment, not for their sins, but for their works after salvation. So are works important? You bet. There's going to be rewards or loss of rewards that we receive based upon what we've done with Jesus Christ after we're saved. It'll be very important. The unbelievers will be, be judged at the great white throne judgment. More on that in just a few minutes. They will be judged for two things. They'll be judged for their sins, and they will be judged for their works. Their works will determine their degree of punishment. More on that in just a few minutes. Another fact, number four, Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ is not risen, we are still in our sins. And there's a great effort to impugn the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come up, they come up with all kinds of theories how this isn't true, but they can't answer the next fact. The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. They could not find the body, and they really tried hard. The next fact is that there were eyewitness testimony to seeing the resurrected Jesus. And the next fact is Jesus told us that because I live, you too will live. Whoever believed, because I live, you too will live. Folks, all people die. Hebrews 9.27 is true, and as it is appointed for men once to die, and after that, the judgment. 
Everyone will be resurrected, the saved and the lost. All humanity are eternal beings. We will all live someplace forever. What you do with Christ here determines where you will live. The first and second resurrection. The first resurrection is for believers, and it has five parts. This is very important. The first one that got resurrected was Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. He's the first fruits. He rose on the third day. The second group that gets resurrected in the first resurrection is us. Now, we can cheer for that. We say, yes, that's us. Yeah, that's Three cheers for us, yes. Thank you, Lord Jesus. The next one is in the middle of the tribulation period. The two witnesses, the two witnesses will be killed. They'll be in the streets for three days, miraculously raised up, and the whole world will see this. They're the next ones. The fourth group are resurrected believers, martyred in the tribulation period. Tribulation believers, and, that, and I think concomitantly we'd be the Old Testament saints, so we could call that the fifth resurrection. The second resurrection, which you do not want to be part of, is the non-believers. This is going to be at the great white throne judgment. So the second resurrection is for non-believers. It's for the lost. And this is to everlasting contempt and shame. And that word contempt is abhorrence. This will be an abhorrent situation. This is the majority of humanity, unfortunately. And the reason that they are not in the first resurrection is really simple. Their names are not recorded in the book of life. They have rejected Jesus Christ. They've rejected the multitude of times that Christ has wooed them, that the Holy Spirit has drawn them, that the Father has drawn them. They've reje rejected the whole Godhead over and over and over and said, no, no, no. What a tragedy. Judgment, they will be, they, their judgment will be for their sins and their works at the great white throne judgment. They refuse salvation by grace through faith. In Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15, we read these words. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. This is judgment language. And there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. When it says small and great, every king, every Caesar, every rich person, all the way down to the poorest, most insignificant on earth person, in earth, earth's eyes, all will be standing before God if their names are not in the book of at this judgment, if their names are not in the book of life. And notice what it says, and the books were open, plural, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead, dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books, plural. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Now look at every, when you put someone to death at sea, every molecule is spread throughout the ocean. But God knows where those molecules are and you'll come back. You see somebody that's been destroyed by an atomic bomb, your molecules will be put back together. Everyone will be brought before the throne of God. The sea gave up its dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You're judged for your sins. Now what about the books, plural? 
There's a couple things that are mentioned in Scripture. Malachi 3.16, there's a book of remembrance that records everything, good and bad, that we do. And then there seems to be a book of records in Revelation 20.12. In the Preacher's Outline Sermon Bible, whoever wrote that thing, there's a whole bunch of authors in it, whoever wrote this section says this, these books are not open to see whether or not a person is doomed to hell. The book of life tells that. These books, the book of records, shows the degree of punishment a person is to receive. Now let me just give you a couple verses on this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 22 to 23 says this. This is Jesus speaking. Now Jesus is speaking to these people because they have seen who Jesus is. They've, they should have known he was the Messiah by the miracles that he did. Watch what he says here. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll be brought down to the depths. You didn't believe me. I was there. You saw what I did. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. There seems to be degrees of everlasting contempt and shame. In Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. The book of records means that judgment will be exact, it will be fair, everything that has been done will be recorded, Everything done in the dark will be recorded, every secret sin, everything that was committed behind closed doors, every ill feeling, every evil thought, everything will be recorded and be revealed, and you'll just be standing there hearing this if you're at that judgment. Hopefully none of us will be there. There's a record of all the works of an unbeliever. They'll be treated fairly. There'll be perfect justice. God is a righteous judge. Now, what do a lot of people think? A lot of people think, I'm a, you've heard this multiple times, I'm a good person. Have you ever heard that? I'm a good person, and I'll just take my chances. I mean, you talk about, I'll take my chances from jumping off of Everest, you know, 20,000 feet up, and just seeing how I do on the way down, and am I going to splatter? And I'll just take my chances. Excuse me, that is the dumbest thing. I, don't take your chances. There is no taking chances. I'm doing the best that I can. Look at You can be the greatest person in the world. You can have infinitesimally small numbers of sins. But God is a holy God. He is righteous, and one sin can keep you separated from God. One sin. We must be covered with the blood of Jesus. If we are not covered with him, we will not be able to stand before a holy God. Remember, Christ's righteousness is credited to us, imputed to us. So now God looks at us as he looks at his son. We are now pure and clean. That's the best deal going. Let's make a deal. That's the deal. Christ died. He did it all. I get a free gift. And now God looks at me like he looks at Jesus. I mean, talk about um, that, that's the greatest thing going. But people, people just want to keep their own way. No matter how mild a sinner he may be, they're still going to be imperfect, and they'll be separated from God. Eternal destiny of the second resurrection of shame and contempt 
are those not written in the book of life. And it's so easy to be written in the book of life. All you have to do is say, yes, Jesus. <laughs> That's all you have to do. I believe you died for me. I trust you. I commit myself to you. That's all it is. If your name is not in the book of life, then it's the worst thing imaginable. Matthew twenty-two thirteen, Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness. What a contrast to the outer darkness with verse 3, the everlasting life crowd. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In verse 3, no matter the darkness of this world, folks, and we are immersed in a dark world here now, the wise shall shine, and those who turn many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. Folks, this is telling me that there's such a contrast between the darkness and the light, and the stars will shine forever. Do you know that God is a wonderful, wonderful rewarder? He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The rewards are going to be off the chart, off the chart. Let your light shine. Folks, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Now, I want to suggest to you something else. The darkness of the tribulation is one thing, and I don't think we're going to be there. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, look, at, I've said this before. I could be wrong. Maybe we'll make it through part of that. I don't want to make it through any of it. So I believe that there's enough evidence here that there's a pre-tribulation rapture. There are people that disagree with that. Okay. But we do live in darkness, and the world is not getting brighter. If you lived any period of time, you can quantitate the diminishment of humanity. So the darkness, the dark world, it's easy to become discouraged while living here. It's easy to become cynical. It's easy to become hardened. It's easy to say, I'm just going to give up, and I want to encourage you, don't give up. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 is still true. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap, uh, reap a harvest if we do what? If we do not give up. Don't give up. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is still true. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. It is not in vain. And Hebrews 6.10 is still true. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, that you minister and do minister to the saints. You hang in. That's what he's talking about here. The everlasting light crowd will shine like the luminaries in the sky, the sun and the stars. Folks, we talked about the angels and what they want us to know. They want us to know about Michael's role. They want us to know about the two resurrections. They want us to know about the book of life. They want us to know about believers shining like the luminaries in the darkness of the culture. They want us to know these things. But verse 4, the angels must know information as this. The book is sealed to the end. The book is sealed to the end. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And there has been a plethora of people trying to understand this verse. 
So I will do my best to give you the this version of it. So, and I think it's correct, or I wouldn't give it to you. So this information obviously doesn't pertain to Daniel. Shut it up, Daniel. This is not for you. It's for some time in the future. So we can, we can all agree on that. The time of the end. So the characteristics of the end he's going to give us. Number one, many shall run to and fro. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, it could mean, and I think it does to some extent, the hectic pace of life that we live at. Isn't this the way life is? We are always going someplace as fast as we can. And by the way, you're in my way. You're in my way. You're in my way. Out of the way, I'm important. Let me get to the front of the line. It, it's, it's constant. Look, at you got a baseball game. You got the practice. Then you have the banquet. Then you have the rewards. And then it starts again with basketball. Then you have gymnastics. Then you have ballet. You have all these. And then they have a banquet. The mom's taking this one. The dad's taking this one. And it's constant, and the pace is unbelievable. It wasn't meant to be this way. That could be one version of this. But I want to suggest to you something else. With this pace that we live in, it has increased anxiety in the population, and it has increased depression in the population. There's no downtime. The world was not always like this. But I want to suggest to you this hectic pace probably refers to this more than anything. The running to and fro are people running during the tribulation period to find out what in the world is going on around us. In Amos chapter 8, verse 11 and 12, we hear these words from the prophet. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but what? For hearing of the word of God. A famine for hearing the word of God. We hear a lot of people talking around the word of God, but little of the word of God. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, they shall, they're searching for the word of God. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro. Didn't we hear that in Daniel, to and fro? Amos says it. They will run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In a panic, these people are going to be wondering what is going on, running to and fro, wondering what is going on in the world. And they're going to say, hey, somebody told me that there's something in the Bible, and they're going to be looking for it, running to and fro. Some people think it's the eyes running to and fro over the pages of Scripture. But I want to submit to you that the majority of the world doesn't want your Scripture. The majority are biblically illiterate. Folks, this will be for a few, for the few remnant believers that really want to know who Jesus is. And these will be the ones that join the rest of the church who will shine like the brightness, like the stars forever and ever. That'll be the ones. Uh, so knowledge shall increase. The general prophetic puzzle will become more and more able to fit together. We are living in an age like none other. The information explosion, the age of technology, giant steps. Do you know that you can get a brand new textbook and you open it up and it's out of date? You can get your journal. You can get your 
your, your American Medical Association journal. You can get New England Journal of Medicine. You can get the Nurse Anesthetist Journal. And you can open it up, and they've done these studies, and they come to you, and they're three or four years old, but they're just coming to print. See, we don't have on time. You can go to the Internet, and you can get all kinds of information there. They, a lot of it to confuse you. Believe me, there's a lot of that going on. Information explosion. Andy Woods, in his work, did this. And he broke down this technology into three things. Notice the world, and this is just going to exemplify the weapons of mass destruction, the satellite TV, and the microchip technology. I want to talk to you about the second two first, the satellite TV. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 8 through 10, the two witnesses are killed. And they lie in the street for three days, and then the whole world sees them. Now, how are the whole world going to see them? It has to be through some sort of satellite TV. They're going to see them resurrected miraculously. Remember, they're the third part of the first resurrection. And then the weapons of mass destruction. There's all kinds of Old Testament uh, verses that talk about the eyes uh, disintegrating in people and people... Stuff that looks like a nuclear holocaust. Okay, we see that in the Old Testament. But Jesus' word in Matthew 24, 22, lest these days be cut short, no flesh will be saved alive. I believe that has to do with nuclear weapons. It also has to do with God pouring out his wrath on earth and all of those seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments destroying the earth. But it also has to do with Antichrist. I think he's using weapons of mass destruction. Now, I want you to look at and think about something else. This, this, this number one thing, the microchip technology. There's actually technology today where there are microchips that people are having implanted into them now. Now, I want you to think about something. The mark of the beast is some mark that is placed on the forehead or on the right hand or right arm, okay? It is not the left arm. It's not the thigh. Those are the, where the Antichrist is going to be identified. People will volitionally take that mark. It's not going to be something undercover. It's not going to be super secret. It's going to be you will know that you are bowing to Antichrist when you take that mark. But the technology has never existed until when? Until our time. Until our time. Swedish commuters can use futuristic microchip hand implant. Gone are the days when an e-ticket was seen as a cutting edge. One Swedish rail company is offering passengers the option of using a biometric chip implanted into their hand in lieu of a paper train ticket. The tiny chip has the same technology as an Oyster cards and contactless bank cards, too, enable conductors to scan passengers' hands. Around 2,000 Swedes have had the surgical implant to date, most of them employed by the tech industry. What's the important thing here is the technology is here today. No other epoch of time have this been applicable to until today and future. So we're in the game here. We're in the game for the Antichrist to come. And again, this isn't going to be a super secret. Uh, you, you, you take the implant, and oh, is this the mark of the beast? It, it won't be something undercover. It'll be very obvious because Satan wants volitional worship. And if you don't worship, guess what? You die. You don't worship, you die. The last thing I want to point out is this. 
I have a picture here of our surveillance society, of our surveillance society. And you'll notice that the cameras, there's a jillion of them. They're all over the place. China is the greatest surveilled society on earth. India being second, and now the West is catching up. That your picture is all over the place, but it's not only cameras. Think about this. Your smartphone. You can be tracked. People, I think they can hear you through your smartphone. These things are giving information to people all over the place. And it's not just that. It's your computer. You're at the computer. Somebody can be watching you on the computer. How about television sets? These new television sets, people can view you in your living room through the television set. The Internet, everything. We are being watched like never before. Folks, I believe this is a prelude to how the Antichrist is going to control the world. Control the world. All this information. And it's happening now in our epoch of time. Don't hear a lot of amens with that, but that's the truth, okay? So that's the technology. A giant key to this verse. Knowledge of the book of Daniel will increase. It'll be progressive illumination. As the culture gets closer to the end, the things that we see written in prophetic literature will become more recognizable. And we're recognizing it. We're recognizing it. But most people won't want it. Most people will ignore the prophecy. Remember, 27% of the Bible is prophecy, and most people don't teach it. They want nothing to do with it. And again, the majority don't want what is written in Scripture. Now, in closing, Isaac Newton was phenomenal. He was a brilliant scientist, but he was also a, a very avid Christian. He wrote this about the time of the end, a body of men will be raised up who will turn their attention to the prophecies. Just a body, won't be the majority, and insist upon the, their literal interpretation. Very few, in the midst of, such, of much clamor and opposition. There's much clamor and opposition to the literal interpretation of the Word of God. Now, that guy said this in the 1600s. Can you imagine what he would think today? Isaac Newton, the technology information explosion. Most people, the vast majority, listen to this, do not want your Bible. The vast majority don't. Your biblical values, your biblical worldview, they don't want your biblical Jesus. They do not. We are living in what is called the apostasy, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, where the church is falling away. The church is falling away from its, from, its, from its foundations. The church of Laodicea. We have a political system. We have a governmental system. We have an educational system. We have a workplace, etc. And now the majority of the churches do not want the real Jesus. Now, they'll have a makeup Jesus. They'll have the Jesus, a just-in-case Jesus, they can pull out of their pocket if they want him, a Jesus of their own creation, but it won't be the biblical Jesus. That's the important thing to remember. Now, let me ask you this. When is the last time you heard a megachurch teaching on Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 26? You know what that says? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, 
and follow me. When is the last time you heard somebody talk about sin and the consequences of sin in some great big church? Very rarely, very rarely. The disciples of Christ would say this, come and see the master. Andrew, come and see the master. Come, Peter, come and see the master. Come and see. And then they would say, come and serve the master. Oh, don't just come and see the master. Come and serve the master. You know what it ends up with? Come and suffer. Come see, come serve, come suffer for the master. Most clamor for a false Jesus, a genie Jesus. Just give me what I want, Jesus, and I'll tell you, your church will explode. Just give me the money, give me the health and the wealth, give me everything that I want. That's the false Jesus. Remember Blaise Pascal, I shared with you this last week. He wrote this quote, and I thought this was a great quote. You might want to stick this down in your, in your Bible someplace. People almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. That is what we see today. I will believe what I find attractive. If it makes me feel good, that's what I want. Give me my made-up Jesus is the cry of the Western world, the Western church. What they forget, what they blot out, what they don't think about is this, what the Bible actually teaches. Everyone, all humans, will live forever someplace. There are two resurrections, all based on whether you trust in Jesus or not. Those whose names are written in the book of life will be in the first resurrection to everlasting life. That's what we want to be in, the first resurrection. Those names that are blotted out of the book of life, the second resurrection, that is to shame and everlasting contempt. Outer darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Folks, this is serious. This is true. Why is it true? Because I say it's true. God said it's true. Your life, however long, is your time of testing. It's your opportunity. Your time to believe or not believe in the real Jesus is now. It is right now. To follow him or not to follow him. To serve him or not to serve him. All of mankind have an opportunity, folks, to know the real Jesus. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. If you just watch me for just a second, just put your stuff down and hear this. Paul is speaking to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. All mankind are savable. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, there's a cost to following Jesus. Denying ungodliness or worldly lust, we should live soberly. That means a sound mind, righteously and godly in this present age. This is to the church all through the epochs of time. This is to us today, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. In the eyes of God, you are special. In the eyes of God, you are special, zealous for good works. What must we know? Well, this is a must-know information. We must believe in the real Jesus. 
those who do will shine like the stars forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you for all the stuff that he went through, all the things that he saw that were pertinent to us today. Help us to not just hear what you're saying and kind of blow it off, but help us to remember there is really a first resurrection and a second resurrection. There really is a book of life that we are recorded in. There really is the awful possibility of someone being blotted out of the book of life if they don't receive you as Savior. Father, right today, I pray that everybody in this room knows you as their Savior. Everybody that is listening to this talk knows you as your Savior. And if they don't, this is the chance, Lord, that we can believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, was buried three days, he rose again from the dead. And if we believe that he took our sin debt on himself, we will be saved. Lord, I pray that for every person here, every person that ever hears this in the future, that they bow the knee to our Lord and say, yes, Lord, I receive the free gift of salvation that is offered by you to us. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word, so thankful for these Old Testament teachings that are applicable to us today. Holy Spirit, please do your work which in, within each heart here. We've all heard something that is significant just for us today. Your word will not return void. It will accomplish what you've desired for it, for it to accomplish. Speak to us today, Lord, the things you want us to hear. Please, in Jesus' name, amen.